Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. And today we're going to be talking specifically about pain. You know, I've talked about pain in the past. I tend to talk about pain uh, more than other topics, and I will be talking about pain even more in the future. In fact, the focus for this particular podcast will be on pain. The reason for that being is my background is pain. I'm a specialist in pain. I'm doing lots and lots of work training uh, physicians and other healthcare providers about pain. Uh, and this problem is so big <laughs> that I think I could be talking about pain every day for the rest of my life. And I'm unsure if we would make a dent in it. Uh, there's so many misunderstandings when it comes to pain. There are so many myths. There's so many falsities. Uh, there's so many uh, misleading advertisements um, that is just absolutely astounding just how big of a problem this is. So we're going to go back to the basics and basics and basics, and we're just going to talk specifically about pain. All right. Now, why are we doing this? Because pain is a big problem in this country. It's the common presenting symptom for anybody who goes to see their, their healthcare provider. In fact, if you look at um, reasons for people to visit their primary care physician, uh, pain, all causes, is number two. Uh, and that makes sense because you tend to not go to your doctor if you're feeling well, right? That makes sense. Uh, it's the most common reason for social security disability for those under the age of 45. And look at the top five reasons for social security disability. It's low back pain, neck pain, other musculoskeletal pain. Those are the, uh, the three of the top five. The other ones are being depression uh, and other mental illnesses there. So huge problem with comes to disability. We're spending massive, massive, massive amounts of money on the treatment of pain. Treat some numbers will say over $600 billion annually in direct or indirect costs. There was a new uh, article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that said for low back and neck pain was the top three reason for spending, total spending in the U.S. healthcare system that was just behind uh, heart disease and diabetes. It seems just absolutely astounding to me. Um, if you look at some of the numbers that are produced by the National Institutes for Health, they say over 100 million Americans uh, are, are living in chronic pain. I do have some problems with that number, but I'm going to use it since they use it in their advertising. Uh, if you look at back pain specifically, second most common reason for all physician visits, lifetime prevalence, meaning uh, 60 and 90 percent of all people in the world uh, will develop back pain at one point in their life. I'm not exactly sure who the 10 percent of people who say they've never gotten back pain um, I think they probably forgot about that, and there's an important clue in that right there. Uh, I myself has had several episodes of back pain in the course of my life. Uh, and interestingly, there are similar rates of back pain between the industrialized and developing world. And the reason I bring that up is there's this myth that there are these countries in the world that have no back pain, and that is frankly not true. Everybody has pain, just like everybody experiences pain. What is remarkably different, though, between these small little nations in other parts of the world and in sub-Saharan Africa and everything is that the rates of disability due to pain and particularly chronic pain are not even close. People who live in areas where you would think that they have very harsh lifestyles, very physically demanding, tend to have less rates of disability than those in industrialized world. And there are some important implications behind that, which uh, we'll hopefully discuss in future episodes. Now, what do we do for pain? If you've listened to a couple episodes in the past, I'd like to tell you that there are three if in, a, in, the, in our routine healthcare system. When you go to a doctor, right, there are only four things that we can do. And if you think about healthcare in this particular way, it really breaks things down. If you think about what we can actually do to you directly, there are only four things. We can look at you. What is looking? It means we can get x-rays, MRI, CT scans. Or we can draw labs so that we're looking into your blood or we're looking at other biological processes. We can cut you. What is that? That's surgery. So we can either open you up, drain things, cut things out, implant things, 
remove things, re-stick re things to back together again. We can poke you. Something I used to do a lot of uh, years ago when I took needles and I put them in areas of your body and I injected all sorts of different little structures in your body. Uh, and we can drug you, meaning we can prescribe medications. But those are the only things that we can do to you directly. Now, we can talk, try to educate, try to motivate and, uh, and uh, inform, but the only things that we can actually do to you are look, cut, poke, and drug. And so when you look at healthcare, when they're the only things that we can do, we tend to do lots of looking, cutting, poking, and drugging, and particularly for pain. See, these things like MRIs for back pain increased over 300%. The procedures, the things I was trained to do, uh, increased dramatically in some scenarios over 1,400%. Surgeries for back pain increased over 300%. Uh, in particular, those surgeries with the worst outcomes, the lowest rates of success, and the poorest criteria for surgeries to be done increased the most. In fact, and then the complex uh, spine infusions increased over, oh, I can't remember exactly, but it was something dramatic. Uh, I, I want to say 1,400% as well, which I do think it was a safe, and that was a five-year time period on that. And then opioids. Everybody loves to talk about opioids. And yes, we have prescribed tons and tons and tons and tons of opioids. Over 690% more prescriptions, uh, opioid prescriptions in one 10-year period, actually eight-year period. However, that was only the number of prescriptions. The actual amount of opioid per prescriptions, or should the amount of opioid per uh, 100,000 people increased over 1,448%. So we increased the number of prescriptions by 690%, but the amount of drug in those prescriptions increased even more. Now, what did we get for all this? Well, disability rates have actually increased. Back pain disability is actually higher now than it's ever been before. In some locations in the United States, like North Carolina, they tripled over a very short period of time. Uh, complication rates have increased. We have people who are more and more rates of complications associated with these with these spine surgeries that are done, quote unquote, for pain. When you look at the injections that I do, people will often say, well, the injections aren't dangerous. BS. Uh, a couple of years ago, we killed over 117 people when we injected tainted steroid in there. There have been complications associated with steroid injections, including infections in the spine. Uh, in other ones, we've paralyzed people in these, when we're doing injections high up in the, uh, in the neck area. And when you look at the actual data on what those injections do, that's actually tragic. Uh, we're not seeing improvements in self-reports, meaning if you look at long-term data trends, people aren't saying they're getting better with, with these injections. In fact, more injections seem to lead to more injections, which lead to more, in, more injections. And we see costs continuing to, to escalate. Now, the overall result, and the, res and the numbers that I like to talk about when I'm talking with physicians are this. If you go back in time and you look at the U.S. population in 2000, we had roughly 282 million people in the United States at that time. Now, the numbers that you look at when you're looking at chronic pain, chronic pain, people who have had pain uh, essentially daily or, 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 or fairly consistently for a longer period of three to six months, depends on what the definition is, we had a population of about 45 to 50 million people living with chronic pain. Now, that is not a small number, all right? Um, not a small number at all, and, and there's reasons for that, which hopefully we'll get to in a future episode as well. But then, if we look at 2010, 10 years after those numbers, the U.S. population increased to 309 million. Okay, so from 282 million to 309 million in 10 years. However, the amount of chronic pain went from 45 million people in 2000 to over 100 million people per the National Institutes of Health. 
Now, if you run the numbers very quickly um, through a calculator or, or if you're just fast at math in your brain, what you'll see is that's a 9.6% increase in the U.S. population in the 10-year time period. But that's a 122% increase in the prevalence rate for chronic pain in that same 10-year time period. Now, what's even more atrocious is that 10-year time period was mandated by Congress to be the, quote, decade of pain control in research. Now, if you increase the problem for which you are trying to control in research by 122%, that should tell you one big, big thing. Either you have no idea about the problem that you're trying to treat, or you're treating it in the wrong way, or both. And as it comes to chronic pain, it's probably both. Now, what's the reason for that? It's because if you look at what we're doing when we're talking about pain, that includes all this talk about opioid and all the fears that we're having about people in pain not having the drugs that they need for their chronic pain is nobody actually talks about pain and nobody defines about what pain is and what it isn't. Instead, we just assume that we know what it is. Now, this is very, very easy to do because we have all experienced pain. Pain is, is a, a protective system that is ingrained into our biology because it keeps us alive. It helps us to survive in the world. However, just because we've all experienced it doesn't mean we understand it well. And this goes for people, patients, lay people, reporters, and it even goes to physicians, including people who call themselves pain specialists. I will tell you from my own personal background, I'm a fellowship trained pain physician. I taught medical residents. I taught pain fellows. And I did not fundamentally understand pain until I went back and wondered why this problem of pain kept getting worse and why these injections that I was trained to do didn't seem to have people get better. Getting better meaning they didn't have to come back for more and more injections or use less and less medications or getting back to living their life. That even though they would say they were getting better, <laughs> when you looked in their charts, they were just getting more injections. So if I wasn't injecting them, the orthopedic doctor was injecting in their knees or they're injecting in their hips or the rheumatologist was injecting their, their shoulders or someone else was running more drugs. Now, this is very, very frustrating, particularly when you go back and you start looking and reading about the vast amount of scientific literature on pain, true research on pain that we have had for over 30 years, and yet tends to get ignored, particularly in the traditional healthcare industry, for reasons that are quite unknown. And I think, realistically, I think the reason is, is because we all assume we know what pain is because we've experienced it. But the fact of the matter is we don't, folks. And the other fact of the matter is there are so many misconceptions and there are so many bad beliefs infecting their population and infecting our healthcare providers in a lot of ways the way that we were initially trained and the words that we use to describe and tell people, quote, unquote, where their pain is coming from and what pain and what it isn't and, the, and whether there's physical pain or emotional pain. There isn't either. Anyway, there's just pain, folks. Um, that we're not going to get better unless we actually understand the, the problem. So let's talk a little bit about what the problem is pain or what specifically pain is and what pain isn't. Right Now, I will also kind of put a little caveat out here. I've done this talk multiple times in communities. Most people, this can be very, very useful to them. A couple of people get really, really upset. I am not here to upset you. I am not here to invalidate you. In fact, what I'm trying to do is actually validate people uh, when it comes to chronic pain to explain how this stuff works a little bit better so that we can look for a solution and we ultimately we can get better, right? That the key for this is all to get better. However, I am no longer 
going to be pussyfooting around these words and not talking about this stuff because I'm concerned someone is going to yell at me. I've been a coward for for too long here, worrying about people saying nasty things and saying how what a horrible doctor you are. And I've realized if you let people silence you and you keep the message from getting out and you keep people who need to hear this information, who can get better, not hear it because of a couple people for whatever reason don't want to hear this, uh, at this point in time, at some point, they may be a little bit more open to it when um, they keep having more and more injections, more and more drugs, and they keep getting worse, and they not their pain doesn't get better, which it can. Um, then I'm harming those the the people who can get better. So I'm 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 again I'm not trying to invalidate, disclaim, or be cruel to any people, but I'm not going to to not talk about these complex problems in a way that is understandable uh, and that can help people just because I'm afraid of a couple clerics out there. So what is pain? Now, you've heard this definition before on Straight Talk Health Talk because I actually like this definition because it makes sense. And what it is, pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with the actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. This is by the International Association for the Study of Pain. There are different variants of this definition, but all of them, all the good ones anyway, the ones that, that have a lot of research behind them, come to these key terms, that pain is unpleasant. If pain is pleasant... It's no longer pain, right? Because pain is a motivator. It's designed to push us away from something or draw our attention in a protective uh, manner. Now, it has both sensory and emotional components. What does that mean? Well, sensory components are the things, the perceptions that you feel from the body. Those are the actual physical characteristics, whether it's sharp, dull, achy, burny, uh, lightning-like pins and needles sensation. That's the sensory component. But you have to have combined to that the emotional side, or what we would call the affective component, uh, which adds the unpleasantness, the suffering value. This is awfulness associated with the the unpleasant meaning associated with it. And you take those together and you generate an experience from it. And what does an experience mean? It means it's a conscious process that drives and motivates future action. Now, if you look at the neurobiology of pain, this also makes sense. And I'm not going to go in too much here, but we have the way that our body is wired. These different divisions seem to work. Now, these are not pain divisions, but these are the way our, our, our body works. So we have an area that takes sensory information from the body, basically nerve transmission from the body, and it sends it through different nerves and different areas of the spinal cord and different areas of the brain that tells us, hey, there's a sensation in this particular area of the body, uh, your foot, your toe, your low back, your head, whatever. And then there's another component that's sort of parallel with that and sort of mixed in in some scenarios that it's called the effective motivational component. And what that does, it provides the flaring. It looks at other things and it says, well, what's the context and scenario here? Uh, and what is this? what does this mean from the sensation? All right, you can have two different sensations, or I should say you can have the same sensation and have two dramatically different meanings associated with dependent on all sorts of variables, including past learning, uh, your your emotional state, whether you're happy, mad, sad, or glad, um, what you're expecting that sensation to mean, um, the environment that you're in, the people that you're with, what you have been told that sensation means, all that influences those characteristics. Now, lastly, those two things to com- com- come together, that sensory component, which is really just the characteristics of the sensation, the pins and needles, the sharp, the dull, and the achy, and that effective component, which is really, again, that that unpleasantness, is this bad, is this good, is this something not to really complain about or not worry about, and it puts those together to generate an experience of pain. Now, if you take about this, or you kind of think about these three pieces fitting together, this is very much like fire. So if you remember 
how fire is created. Again, something we tend to as to assume that we know everything about. That you take a match and it starts a fire. Well, actually, fire is a process, and there is something called the fire triangle. Uh, that I thought I learned in some fancy place, but I was doing a lecture about this and someone raised their hand and they said, no, I actually learned about this in Girl Scouts, which makes sense. Uh, but a the fire triangle, which has three components to it, which fit together to create fire, is that you have to have a fuel source. You have to have an oxygen or, or something to provide oxygen so that it combusts. And then you have to have a heat source that ignites that. So ignition, fuel, and oxygen, all of which are required to produce fire, the process of fire. Now, the fire triangle and, and actually a more developed version called the fire tetrahedron are taught to firefighters and they think about the fire triangle every day. How do I know that? Because I've actually talked to firefighters about the fire triangle because I want to make sure I was getting this straight. And the reason that they learn the fire triangle and the reason they think about the fire triangle every day is because every time they go to fight a fire, they separate that fire into these three components because that tells them how to combat and smother the fire or restrain the fire or get the fire under control so it prevents uh, future harm and we don't burn down buildings and we don't lose lives, right? Makes perfect sense. But they don't go into every fire assuming they know what it is or just to say that all fire is the same and we're just going to throw water on it. Because while water works well for many, many, many fires, in certain scenarios, if you throw water on the, f the fire and you don't understand how these components fit together, you can electrocute yourself, you can make it blow up, you can make the fire worse than it was before. Now, pain is very similar. We have three components that fit together to create the experience of pain. We have the sensory aspect. That's the stuff I was talking about, that, that nerve impulse that comes up from the body. That nerve impulse in and of itself is not pain, though. All it is is a nerve impulse that says, hey, here's some information. Here's a sensation that we're going to categorize either sharp, dull, achy, burning, etc. Then you have the other component, the affective or the emotional component that provides the meaning behind the sensation. This is, says, hey, this is unpleasant, this is bad, this is good, whatever. And then the last part is the cognitive, the higher elements of the brain, which is the thinking process that says, how much attention do we have to do to it? What else is going on in the environment? What are my past beliefs? What do I expect this sensation along with this, this, this meaning behind it? Uh, to, to mean for my future, and it is only when you have all three of these components. The, the fancy way to say it is the cognitive, the emotion, and the sensory aspects in order to create the experience of pain, or you can think about it in the way of thinking, feeling, and sensing. Feeling being the emotion behind it, and sensing being that actual characteristic, the sharp, dull, achy, burny, uh, pins and needles, lightning-like characteristic. But you have to have all three of those sensations, or all three of those components, per se, sorry about that, in order to create the experience of pain. Now, if you start thinking and realizing that pain, the experience of pain, is created from these three variables, it can change your life. If you are a physician or healthcare provider and you truly understand the pain triangle, it can change how you practice medicine because the pain stops becoming this mysterious thing, this mysterious, unpredictable thing where people say, well, I have real pain or I have physical pain or I have emotional pain or this doesn't work for my pain. And you start seeing all pain as pain and you can start dissecting these components so that you can, quote unquote, fight it like a firefighter would fight a fire effectively all right now i just want to, to leave you with a couple last hints here when we understand pain as an experience again this is life-changing to you or and to me it was really life-changing to me too 
But when we understand this, we realize that pain is a conscious phenomenon, like all experiences are. This requires an awake and alert brain. And this means that the creation of pain takes is completely dependent on the brain. Okay? So whether you break your leg or you have chronic pain for which we, quote-unquote, can't find anything wrong with you, which is a bunch of BS, by the way, all pain is created in the brain. This means all pain is real. If you are experiencing pain, it's real. There is no such thing as real pain or fake pain or whatever. You know, I, I, it drives me absolutely insane when I hear physicians say, well, this patient has real pain. If the patient says they have pain, it's real. What they're usually trying to say, or what you see in, in a lot of the, the dialogue when it comes to opioids, is people say, this pain is real, and some, some, for some reason, real pain requires opioids. No, there's a specific scenario when opioids make sense, and it is not because it's quote-unquote real or not. It's when we look at the components that create pain and what, what those main ones are. Because just like a fire, if we understand what those components are, in, most, in some situations, the fire requires water. And in some situations, the pain requires opioids. But there are many, many different ways that we can fight a fire. And there are many, many different ways that we can, we can, we can combat pain and improve it and get people better from pain. And it's not just opioids or not. So when we understand this, Again, we and we and, and I'm going to go in this a little bit more, and I've I've gone into this in, in depth for a lot of the healthcare providers I'm with. When you understand this, it makes sense, and then it becomes no longer of I'm depriving my patient from an opioid, or I'm taking them off this this opioid because they quote unquote don't have real pain, whatever that. Don't ever use that word real pain with me, by the way. I will scream in your face. Um, but when we understand this, we now can start treating people effectively and safely in a way that they can get better. All right, so that's enough today. Um, I'm sorry if I raised my voice here. I'm sorry if I talked really fast, but again, I'm, I get really passionate about this stuff, and it's very, very frustrating to see what is happening when people equate terms. People hear the word opioid, and they associate with that pain. No, opioids aren't for pain. Opioids work at specific aspects of the pain triangle in order to modulate improve, and in some situations worsen the experience of pain. But they're not the same thing. Opioids don't equal pain. Pain doesn't equal opioids. And a couple other terms that we'll get to in a future episode. So that's it for this day, for this particular episode. Thank, thank you all folks for listening, and I will talk to you again uh, real soon. Take care.